Good evening to you all. And first of all, it's still, well, it's not January, but Happy New Year anyway. Uh, this is my first uh, night in the pit uh, at LA Opera, and I'm thrilled to do it. And this is also the first night of uh, Figaro Unbound, okay? The three operas that are based, or I should say more correctly, three of the operas based on the works of... Uh, of a, of a French playwright, Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais. You don't have to say all of that. Um, it's just Beaumarchais, that's enough. Uh, he's famous for, uh, for two of them and a half of another. There were three at the beginning, it was a trilogy, and we're doing the trilogy here in, uh, in LA Opera this year. It is, uh, it is bigger than just the performances here. As you know, Figaro Unbound is all over the city because he's unbound. Uh, and he's one of the favorite characters of uh, uh, the, the world has adopted Figaro, uh, partially because, well, m largely because of the popularity of the Barbara Seville and the, mar the Marriage of Figaro, which you, uh, I'm sure, will have heard of if you haven't seen. Now, we are doing the three operas um, in the wrong order. So, in case you have to save the questions, because everybody else, what, isn't this the wrong order? Yes. We are doing them backwards chronologically. The Ghost of Versailles was written by John Corigliano in, or premiered in 1991. Uh, the Barbara Seville by Rossini was premiered in 1816. Uh, and, and Mozart, of course, in uh, 1782. Why, why are we doing that? Sorry, 1786. Because artists' availability. There's certain people, we could only get them this time to do the, the Ghost of Versailles. So bear with us. You're going to get a sort of the end of the story, but then we're going to backtrack. It's like The Ring. You know that the libretto of The Ring was written backwards because Wagner wanted to keep explaining what had happened before. And that's how it got to be 20 hours long. So tonight, The Ghost of Versailles uh, by John Corigliano. It is, uh, the proper order is, of course, The Barber of Seville, The Marriage of Figaro, and uh, the... Uh, the Ghost of Versailles. Now, I talk very fast. Uh, there won't be a test at the end of this, but hold on to it, um, as much of it as you can and will. Uh, you can always come back for a second hearing, and I presume, uh, I presume you're going to want to do that. Um, if you want to get, have a little erudition, don't read it now. There's the program note. I wrote an article in there. There's also a synopsis in there, which will help you figure out the story after you've seen the opera. Uh, we also, there's a longer version of this on the, uh, on the, on the website, and there are also, uh, you can watch John Carigliano be interviewed first by Christopher Kirsch and second by me. So you'll have a lot of information you can accumulate, so that if you meet anybody this week and they say, how is the Ghost of Versailles, first of all, you're going to say, great, because I believe this is one of the greatest productions that we have done in the time I've been here. Um, it is astounding. And I think during the week, someone will ask you, and then you can really you'll have a lot of knowledge at your fingertips and everyone will be very impressed and then um, perhaps some of your friends will come next week. Now, uh, Beaumarchais started playing a big role in my life very, very, very young. And um, that story you're going to hear next time when we do The Bar, uh, the Bar of Seville. But I found out um, a little bit about Beaumarchais when I was 11, and by the time I was 12, I knew a lot. So I have loved this idea of doing the three Beaumarchais operas all my life. This is a big moment for me. That's all you're going to hear about it now. When we come back to The Bar of Seville, you can hear the rest. Uh, now, the... John Corigliano, who is, who is present tonight and will be in the public, and um, 
Yeah, presumably, he will come on stage at the end of that. Um, he was born in 1938. He is preeminent amongst American composers. Uh, he is a Pulitzer Prize winner. He has won four Grammys, an Academy Award. Uh, he is one of, uh, if not the leading American composer of our day. He has written one opera. This is the opera. It was, pre it was premiered in the, uh, at the Metropolitan Opera in 1991. Uh, I was there at the premiere, um, and I saw a lot of rehearsals because it just so happened I was conducting the Flying Dutchman at the same time, and so I used to sneak up and see rehearsals. Uh, it was an, a memorable night. I went back to see it a second time, and uh, it has not been produced as it is a very large work many times in the United States. This is the West Coast premiere. It's also been done by the Chicago Lyric Opera in the big version. And then there is a reduced version that was done by the St. Louis Opera, several other operas. But it has not, this is a big event. This is a new production. Uh, Darko Chesniak, if you remember, cast your mind way back to the dwarf and the broken jug. That is, uh, that is Darko. Uh, Tresniak. Now, Beaumarchais is described, and I'm going to read you the entry in Wikipedia to give you an idea. Uh, <clears throat> it was born in 1732, no, died in 1799, was a French playwright. And here's what else he did. Watchmaker, inventor, musician, diplomat, fugitive, spy, publisher, horticulturist, arms dealer, satirist, financier and revolutionary, both the French and the American Revolution, and uh, thereby hangs a tale. Beaumarchais is actually uh, a man that, the, that we as a nation owe, uh, owe an enormous debt, although that, that has remained unrecognized pretty much until this day. How many of you learned about Lafayette when you, when you studied social studies? Yeah. All right, everybody, right. He was the, the Frenchman who helped us, right? Well, the story starts well before him when Maubarchet tried to convince the king to openly side with the American Revolutionary Army. The king was, uh, was hesitant, so Beaumarchais decided himself to get an enormous cache of arms, which he paid for himself. He sent it to the rebels at his own expense, and they used those arms at the Battle of Saratoga, which, as you know, was a decisive battle. So we owe a great deal to Beaumarchais. Did we recognize it? No. When he looked for a little recognition, um, nothing from the early founding fathers. When he asked for uh, a little bit of that money, they said, well, you can have a third of it. And he said no. And the fact that he had helped the American Revo Revolution had remained a secret or confidential until the 1880s. Uh, interesting that this man, who was, who, was, who was absolutely fundamental in the French support for the American revolutionaries, has gone unrecognized. So he is a great man. Now, he, he was the son of a watchmaker, and he started as a watchmaker, and he, made, he invented a part of the watch um, that got him a job where he became the king's watchmaker. Okay, king, uh, king Louis XV, the penultimate king of France. And that, from there, he may, started making his way. He was a complex character. And he's going to sing an aria. You know the great aria, Largo al Factanum, you know, Figaro, 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 that you're going to hear next month in the Barber Seville. Well, there's a Figaro's aria. And he tells us about himself in that, uh, in that aria. And it's something goes like something. He's now an older man, of course. I pant when I walk. I wheeze when I talk. My muscles are slack. I have a pain in my back. I'm lazy by nature. I'm almost a lecher. I'm proud. I'm greedy. My manners are shoddy. Of what are they jealous? I mean, why are people jealous of me? This is a perfect 
perfect description of the complex uh, character of, of uh, Beaumarchais. Um, now he says, once master, now valet, as fortune would have it. And then he starts to run down the list. I've been veterinarian, egalitarian, heathen comedian, pious tragedian, orator poet, and pirate and prophet, a man for the ladies, a father of babies. Drunk, drunken and sober, a husband and sailor, banker and brother, a barber and lover, diplomat, acrobat, teacher of etiquette, me, satirist, pessimist, surgeon and Calvinist, I've been diplomat, acrobat, teacher of etiquette. Uh, teacher of etiquette, student and swordsman, spy and musician. He was a musician, and he, in fact, it is sus suspected that he wrote music for the Barber Seville, which has been lost and never found. Uh, I, I mean, coincidentally, he was also, he taught the daughter of the king. He played the harp and the flute. That much we know. Uh, spy and musician, satirist, pessimist, surgeon and Calvinist, Spanish economist, clockmaker, pharmacist, I'm Figaro, you're Figaro, I'm home again. Home again. Now that is the libretto by William Hoffman, and that is a an absolute perfect description of this multifaceted uh, character. Now, um, as you see, I've we made a few posters here. Now I know your eyes are, if, even if they're 2020, and you can see on the side, you're going to have a little trouble seeing them. But um, d you know, do run up here before you go back to go to your seats and just have a quick look. Uh, they are the casts of the three operas in their sequence, The Barber of Seville, Rossini, Mozart's uh, The Marriage of Figaro, and John Corigliano's Ghost of Versailles. Now, um, before I tell you a little bit about The Ghost of Versailles, I, we have to back up and I have to give you a quick timeline of Beaumarchais, the plays, because they're very important. Um, his hero was Moliere, who was who is from the 17th century, 1622 to 1666. Um, remember the word Tartuffe, Tartuffe, okay? That's an that's a, a important play um, by Moliere, and it's going to be the model for the third opera, uh, for the third play of Beaumarchais, which is called La Mère Coupable, which is, which is The Guilty Mother, okay? Now, uh, uh, Moliere had died by 1673, uh, uh, 50, over 50 years later, uh, Pierre-Augustin Caron was born. That was his name, Caron. Uh, he added Beaumarchais later. Um, the, there, uh, there's an important Italian in this story. You don't know him. His name is Giovanni Paisiello. Uh, you'll find out why he's important in a moment. Mo was born in 1740. Mozart, 1756. Um, in, by 1758, uh, Pierre-Augustin Caron, and that's still his name, is giving harp lessons to the, to the King Louis XVI uh, and daughters at Versailles. Um, by 1764, he traveled to Spain where he conceived the character of Figaro. So it is no accident that the barber of Seville is in Seville, and the marriage of Figaro is outside of Seville because he drew from his own experiences. In 1765, he took the name Beaumarchais, and then he added de, which makes you a an aristocrat. So if any of you have this in mind, just find some nice name, put de in front of it, and change your identity, go to France, and you're an aristocrat. That's how it worked. Now, that was actually a small property owned by his second wife. He married up twice. Uh, both wives conveniently died, and he went off with a fortune, although he lost that fortune at one point. But now we get to the important stuff. 1775, the Barber of Seville is performed for the first time at the Comédie Française. 
1776, that's the next year, is the American Revolution. Now, he had already been working for uh, the revolution starting seven, and then by 1777, he was sending weapons. Okay, keep, keep this in line. France officially enters the war with England in 1778. We're getting to the big years now. Beaumarchais uh, publishes the complete works of Voltaire, which was revolutionary. So Figaro unbound, there he is, the revolutionary spirit. 1781, The Marriage of Figaro by Marchais is, uh, is, uh, is released, in, but banned by the king. In 1782, Giovanni Paisiello writes the first opera based on the of Seville and premieres it in St. Petersburg. In 1784, the ban on the marriage of Figaro is uh, lifted. It becomes a success in Paris. 1786, uh, Mozart writes that opera in, uh, in Vienna. Paisiello and Mozart met in between those years, and there's no question that Paisiello's opera was a, an important influence on Mozart. More on that subject another time. 1789, that's the French Revolution. 1791, Mozart dies. 1792, 20 years later now, he's writing the third story, La Mer Coupable. Uh, in 1792, uh, Rossini is born. 1799, Beaumarchais dies. 1816, uh, Rossini dares to make an opera out of the Bar Barber of Seville, even though the, uh, the venerated Paisiello had, had written an opera that had held the stage for some 30 years. Um, the followers of Paisiello went to the premiere of Rossini's Barbersville and booed and hissed and made a big, man uh, big manifestation against the opera. Nevertheless, it was a success and brokenhearted or bitter or something like that. Paisiello died three months later. Now, that's the end of the timeline. And, and now we're going to look at the operas themselves. Um, there are 46 characters in The Ghost of Versailles. You don't need to know a lot of them, but I'll just give you an idea. The conceit of the entire opera is that Beaumarchais, the, the author, is in love with Marie Antoinette, the last queen of France. Based on fact, very loosely, but it's, it's not impossible. Um, that is the conceit, and the story will go. They are ghosts, remember. Everybody in this opera is a ghost. So time, present and future, and past have all been blended together, so anything can happen. Um, Beaumarchais decides to write a play or an opera for Marie Antoinette because she's a little blue. Why is she blue? Because she's been up uh, in... Uh, Queen Heaven ever since uh, she was beheaded in 1793, and he wants to cheer her up. And so he takes, his, he takes his Figaro characters, and he puts them in the opera. Now, there are three Figaro characters who make it through the entire uh, Barbara Seville, the marriage of Figaro, and here, in, in that little square, are the characters from La Mer Coupable, the guilty mother. Only three characters, Figaro, Rosina, the beautiful young Rosina who becomes the countess in The Marriage of Figaro, and the Count of Almaviva, Count Almaviva. There are only three that make it the whole way. In The Guilty Mother, what is the story of The Guilty Mother? How many of you remember Cherubino? That darling little boy who's so, who falls in love with about five women a day. Well, there's a moment in the second act that suggests that maybe even the countess is a little bit fond of Cherubino. Well, guess what? In the 20 years that ensued between the marriage of Figaro and the guilty mother, the Count Almaviva went on a trip to South America and stayed for three years. One thing leads to another. 
and the Countess and Carabino fall in love, fully in love, and they have a son. Count Almaviva returns, not happy, uh, but that's the guilty mother. Our Rosina has had a son with Carabino. Carabino is sent off to war, and very sadly, he's dead. We do not see him again. Meanwhile, the Count must have been doing something in South America because uh, he has a daughter whom he, uh, with, he had an affair with a duchess, and now there's a daughter. There's a boy and a girl. They're both 20 years old, and guess what? They fall in love. And the plot, uh, there are two basic plots going on in the, the Guilty Mother. Those, those nice young people want to get together despite the Count's objection and the Countess's support. And eventually, they're going to get married. And if I see you squirming and worrying about it, do your calculating. It's all okay. They're not blood relatives. Now, there's another story about a bad man named Be uh, uh, Bejars, who is an enemy of Figaro. And he is based on a lawyer who was, in fact, Beaumarchais' enemy, whose name was Bergassa. So he puts them in his opera, a little bit like Dante puts people he hated into the Inferno. He is going to get back on him. Now, the Count of Alamir, there are some ghosts around. We are doing an opera in there that, that it is possible to still find people who sang the premiere. And I have one here tonight. He's not a ghost, but he is a man very well known all throughout Los Angeles and, of course, most of the, most of the country as a, a tenor, but then a tenor who became a great, great director and administrator, and it is UCLA's own, own director of opera studies, Peter Cazares, and I want Peter to stand up just to show you he's not a ghost, he's right there. <laughs> well, now, Peter, you can tell us if we did all right afterwards. Now, the opera has, the opera has, the Ghosts of Versailles have three uh, types, the three realms, the three types of, uh, of world. It has the world of the ghosts, and that is expressed with very 20th century music, okay? It's going to be, this is atonal, microtonal occasionally, only once, actually, there's a tone row, but it is, you will see it is very descriptive of the ghost world. It will start that way. But then very soon after, when the figural characters arrive, it becomes neoclassical music. It is like Mozart and Haydn and Schubert and uh, sometimes romantic music, all of the above. So you've got the realm of, the, uh, of Beaumarchais and the operatic world, which is neoclassic music. You have the revolutionary uh, music, because we are going to see a reenactment of some of the, of the revolution. We are going to see Marie Antoinette tried, and you will hear not a, a fantasy of the trial, you will hear the exact text of the trial. And um, you will see the re revolu revolution, and yes, there is a guillotine at the end. It, you won't see it, but you'll see the guillotine, but you won't see Marie Antoinette. Um, so that is the overall picture. So um, what you see here in the Ghost of Versailles, inside uh, that, those are the characters from the marriage of Figaro, the count and countess, uh, Carabino, now deceased, um, who the Countess and Ca Countess make their son, Leon, he's in our opera. The Count and an unnamed Duchess have made Florestine, the young lady. Susanna, they're the little red, sir, sorry about this for all of you that are on the sides, you'll get your money back afterwards. Uh, the uh, Susanna and Figaro are down at the bottom, of course, they got married in the marriage of Figaro, there they are. Here's the Countess, the Count, Leon, and Florestine, the child. Here's the wicked Bejars. He has a servant named Wilhelm. Here's Marie Antoinette 
and Louis, and the king, Louis XVI, is in the opera. He disapproves of her affair or her love with Beaumarchais, naturally. Uh, he has a friend, the Marquis. There's a woman with a hat. There are jaded aristocrats. They are at the opera, bored. There are gossips. Uh, there are revolutionary women. But th this is the core of the opera, and this is what really, really counts. And this is what we're going to see. Now, uh, the, those, keep those three realms in mind, operatic world, revolutionary world, and the ghost world, which is the present. So now here I'm going to give you a sample of some of that music. Now, remember, this goes very fast. Here are the ghosts, and this is not something you would want to uh, run into on Halloween. You know immediately you're in a different realm. Now that realm, of course, is going to have some, some activities in it. You'll hear it. That realm is there, and it's over in seven minutes. Now, at seven minutes, Figaro comes in. Now, Figaro comes back. John Corigliano is so brilliant that he's one of the few people who can actually write classical All over, music. I was followed. And there are recitatives, just da, like there are, with the harpsichord. It's actually a synthesizer in this case. You'll find him. Well, where's Beaumarchais? I don't know where he went. He's looking for Figo. Find him, or I'll throw you out. That is Peter Casares as Count Malamaviva. Now, um, Beaumarchais is going to introduce the characters. characters. Our cast of characters. Rosina. Rosina. Listen to this gentle, beautiful classical music. The wife of Listen Santa to the Malvina. first few notes of this. Our cast of characters. Rosina. Now, Rosina's going to meet, we're going to learn about Rosina and Carabino. Listen to that one more time. Our cast of characters, Rosina. And of course, Corigliano is telling us who it is. All you have to hear is the first several notes. Now, this is one of many citations from Mozart, from Rossini, from Wagner. They're all thrown in there in a delightful way. Uh, and here, follow this, for instance. Anybody recognize that? Let's look at them now. What is it? The Marriage of Figaro, the overture. 
here's another one. There's another one. Listen to the trumpets. Listen again. And compare it to the Barbara Seville. So it's all hidden in there, and then it's all, it's all in there together. This is the big finale of Act One, where all 42 characters are on the stage. Okay, so here we go, a little bit more. This is Beaumarchais. And here is a little song that Marie Antoinette, Golden Bird, it's called. Once there was a golden bird in a garden of silver trees. From the courtyard could be heard the laughter of women at their ease. This, of course, is Marie Antoinette. And this is a theme that is reminiscent of Rosencavalier, the silver, not, not the silver, uh, the, the, this is not a golden bird, that was a silver, but it is reminiscent of the th one theme from the trio at the end of Rosencavalier, which is also an opera which is anachronistic. It's about a different time. Now, there are memories of the revolution. Breaking windows. Breaking windows. The throngs. Listen to the ox cart that is going to take her to the guillotine. Here it is. The back of an ox cart in the And then that's going to be contrasted with Classical Overture, taken from Rossini. And now Figaro's gonna tell us who he is. I've been diplomat, acrobat, teacher of etiquette, student and swordsman, spy and Satirist, pessimist, surgeon, and Calvinist, Spanish economist, clockmaker, pharmacist, veterinarian, egalitarian, heathen comedian, highest project. And here he is in the end. Can you follow the words? You're not meant to.
honoring a performance from the Metropolitan Opera. Now, here he is, the oh, wicked and evil Bergam. You can hear him whacking around his servant, Wilhelm. Poor Wilhelm. Wilhelm uh, is a little bit a Teutonic version uh, of Manuel from Faulty Towers, for many of you who happen to be there. Yeah. Now, uh, Berjas loves the worm. This is, here he is, the worm. Listen to the worm. He sings an aria to the worm. You can hear the synthesizer underneath all of that, crawling around. Coming to this refrain, he's, he's wicked, 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 wicked. Almost a caricature of, of, of the villain. Long live the worm. Cherubino and Rosina. Rosina is able to conjure back. This is very classical, as you can hear. It could be Schubert, it could be Mozart. This is the Carabino aria motive. Now, there's a terrific comic scene toward the end of Act One. It's in the, in the Turkish embassy. Uh, and it is the hero that Figaro is going to try to steal the jewels in order to uh, liberate Marie Antoinette. First, we meet the Pasha. Like. The British ambassador. He enters. A Turkish band playing God Save the King. And here is the delectable Samira, beautiful Egyptian dancer who is, of course, the lover of the Pasha. She sings a song, a slow song. Terrific ly lyrics. I am in the valley, and you are in the valley. This will be sung tonight by Patti Lupone. This is a cameo appearance. You are listening to Marilyn Horn, one of the great singers of our time. Uh, and I remember this as a high point of the performance. It was hilarious when she came out. Now, a little later, 
it gets lively. And that repeats over and over and over and over and over until they are in a uh, state of excitation. And at the end, words fail her, but passion does not. A showstopper, and we are very proud that Patty Lupone has come back to us. You know, she and I went to school together, so this is a sort of a reunion. Now, not enough. Here's a kazoo orchestra in the Turkish Embassy, and that's going to all add to the fun of the middle of the opera, the concertato, just like in Rossini operas. Everyone's on stage. Everybody sings. Now, there's a lady there dressed up in a Wagnerian costume. Listen to that again. Tristan and Isolde in the middle of the Turkish embassy. The end of Act One. Everybody was on stage. Now in Act Two, remember, we're going to hear the Figaro characters singing and speaking as if they were in a Mozart opera. Here's Rosina, Rosina and Carabino. It's hard to hear the violins. But they're singing their idyllic song about love, and it is a quotation from Così fan tutte. Become serious then. The two sit, sing, O oh time, O oh thieving time, give me back my stolen years. Remember, they're ghosts, and they would like to return to love and life. Renee Fleming singing Rosina. I should say that she's eternally young. Okay, now it turns, it turns nastier now. This is the revolution.
song. There are six revolutionary women who move through the entire second act of the opera. Now, for contrast, there's also a classical orchestra that plays at the ball. Oh, I'm sorry. I miss him. That's our friend Bejars uh, again. And here he is talking about rats. So his, his big themes are worms and rats. That's how you know he's a villain. Listen to the orchestra and the imitation of rats. Rats. Here's our classical orchestra, I think. Listen to this little minuet. Can you come up a little bit? And that also is based on that you can hear in March. A love quartet. The young lovers. Leon Floristine. Alma Viva and Picautus Alma Viva. So now we're getting, uh, this is one of the most poetic moments in the opera. There is extraordinary writing for the orchestra. All of the themes come back in a beautiful nocturnal interlude. And then, quoting the love theme. Opera, and you've got Strauss and Wagner at the other end. Here, the lovers all sing again, O God of Love. In a moment that is floating, it becomes not four, but five, when Marie Antoinette sings a prayer in Latin, Misere Mei, on the eve before her execution. And she'll be in the background. Here she, here she comes. That's Marie over everybody else. And the end of this is thank you for this moment of peace. All the ghosts are now at peace. to the guillotine. There's the love theme. You can hear it in the horn. Like 
melody you'll know. The Young Revolutionaries. And you'll hear that juxtapose against the ghost music that comes back at the end. Here's, you're going to hear the Golden Bird. The oboe plays the Golden Bird. That's, Mar that's Marie Antoinette. And the opera is going to... Closer and closer to the end, we hear ghost music, ghost music, ghost music. A beautiful A major chord, shining, pristine light. Here it is again. Anybody recognize it? Any of you Wagnerians out there? Holy Grail, you got it, there you go. Holy Grail, Lohengrin. That's it. Listen to that. No, don't listen to that. It fell off my iPod. That chord tells us something very important, that our wonderful ghosts have found, indeed found the grail. The whole plot didn't work out the way it was meant to by Beaumarchais. The singer's uh, Figaro revolted. He turned the story around. But Marie Antoinette, in the end, uh, he, Beaumarchais says, I want to write history as it should have been. And Marie Antoinette, with great wisdom, said, no, Beaumarchais, history is as it should have been. In other words, she accepts her place in the universe, her role, and it is a sublime, sublime ending. So you're going to laugh, you're going to cry, you're going to be moved, and you're going to see, I think, one of the most fabulous productions with all 41 characters and a fabulous orchestra and chorus. Hope you enjoy it, and be sure to come back to the other Figaro operas. Thank you very much.